0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Brady McCartney, your host today. I'm joined by Sarah Mittelfeld, author of Tangled Roots, The Appalachian Trail, and American Environmental Politics, published by University of Washington Press. She is an environmental historian and professor of Earth, Environmental, and Geographical Sciences at Northern Michigan University. Sarah Mittelvelt, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks. It's good to be here, Brady.
0: I appreciate you making the time. Um, So, to start, um, if you would, could you tell us a bit about yourself, your personal background, your scholarly background, and how you became interested in this topic?
1: Sure. I am currently a professor in the Department of Earth, Environmental, and Geographical Sciences at Northern Michigan University, um, which is located on the shores of Lake Superior, the ancestral homelands of the Anishinaabe, and I grew up in the Midwest, I grew up in Minnesota, and um, I did my undergraduate work in Minnesota at Carleton College, Um, went on to do my master's work in actually science education at Harvard University, and taught eighth grade science for a while, and realized that teaching eighth grade science was not a sustainable career choice for me, so I went back and uh, got my doctorate in a combined. degree between forestry and environmental studies at the university of wisconsin madison and um my first professional job was at green mountain college which was an environmental liberal arts college in vermont it uh, no longer exists but um, was a really fantastic place to uh, kind of do some innovative um teaching and research in applied environmental uh Topics, I guess, in Vermont, and um, I've been at Green Mountain, or I've been at Northern Michigan University for about seven years now. So, yeah.
0: All right. Yes, I, I knew knew Green Mountain College while it existed. So uh, rest in peace. <laughs> rest
1: in peace <laughs> yes. indeed. Yes, <laughs> yes,
0: a lovely place, and uh, yeah, still worth visiting, and not far from uh, the topic of this uh, of this book. So yeah. Um, so, if you would, uh, could you describe the Appalachian Trail or Appalachian Trail? Um, there is some discussion about pronunciation. I'm told it's Appalachian, but, you know, we, we can talk about that too. <laughs> um, so, so, what is it environmentally, economically, culturally? Um, what does it symbolize? And how, um, how does it represent a vision of wilderness that is particularly Eastern in nature?
1: Out a lot in that question. <laughs> so yeah, I think when most people think of the Appalachian Trail, they do think of this, you know, famous wilderness footpath that runs um, pretty close to a significant portion of the American population. Um, and I was sort of drawn to it because um, the human history contained in that wilderness landscape had been previously pretty unexamined. Um, and so that's what this book helps to do is to really tell the, the human stories contained in that footpath. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it, like you said, there are so many ways of in which this thin piece of landscape has affected all these different areas in, in our culture, um, has in some ways like um, reflected and helped shape new forms of environmental action and, and new and environmental advocacy. Um, certainly it is a cultural symbol for, uh, you know, Americans fascination with with nature and this idea of getting back to nature, but yet being sort of accessible to growing urban populations. Um, I think the Appalachian Trail really holds a special place in in kind of the American imagination um, for people who are interested in that kind of adventure. But um, what I really hope to do with this book was to tell, um, again, the story like that kind of is often hidden when people are thinking about wilderness type landscapes and and really tell it as as a storied landscape that has a lot of complexity um, and a lot of different ideas about what is the proper way to use and manage land um, that was reflective of, I think still today, a lot of tension between rural and urban communities in the United States.
0: Yes, I I think the resonances, um, as we were discussing offline, uh, this book was first published in 2013 and in 2022, I think (laughs) the resonances are very strong if you were paying attention um and i think it's it's appropriate that uh william cronin uh <laughs> gives the introduction given his uh trouble with wilderness essay i th- i think there's there's certainly some some strains of that argument in this wonderful book
1: absolutely yeah absolutely
0: um so just uh you know to to lay i guess a, a couple of it's a couple of the big ideas, but also the important people um, that are central to this story. So, so who is Benton McKay or Benton Mackay, um, and how did he and his contemporaries uh, first envision the Appalachian Trail? And how similar is the current trail in 2022 to the original vision?
1: Yeah, that's a great place to start because most people do think of Benton Mackay as like the the founding father of the idea of the Appalachian Trail. So he was the first to publish um, a fascinating essay in the Journal of American Architecture in 1921, where he outlined this idea of a footpath that would link um, what today we would kind of call sustainable agriculture or working forested landscapes, communities that were rural in nature, but ha- um, provided opportunities for expanding urban populations to reconnect with a nature that he felt this increasingly urbanized industrialized nation was becoming alienated from. And so the trail was going to be um, a, a kind of a, a link between a new form of economic development. Um, he Benton Mackay was one of the first... Um, foresters trained with Gifford Pinchot, who started the US Forest Service. Uh, But he was also very instrumental in um, influencing the growth of the Regional Planning Association in in the United States, the first American um, organization of, of regional planners. And so the Appalachian Trail was really his first tangible experiment with regional planning and with land use planning and working landscapes. And how do we balance the needs and desires of rural communities with um, the needs and desires of, of expanding urbanized um, industrial centers? And so it was this there's some great images. Ben Mackay loved to develop maps, and they're just um, really creative works of art. Um, it was really fun to explore his collections at the Dartmouth college has a uh, Ben MacKay's papers and he had all these like fantastic maps that he had drawn um, not just for this project but other ideas that he had about regional planning throughout the country but in his Appalachian Trail essay in 1921 again these um these sort of community centers along the trail would be places that would be kind of oasises where um, they would have long-term employees working there, but, you know, urban people who are doing some hikes on the trail could spend some time in these kind of working uh, communities and kind of reconnect with, um, in some ways, an idealized past about Americans' kind of agrarian past. And it would be a way to provide that connection between um, urban and rural communities through shared work in nature. And then the trail itself, he, he didn't envision necessarily... Um, You know, this idea of through hiking that most people today, when you think about the Appalachian Trail, you think about that through hiking experience, the person who goes all the way from Georgia to Maine or Maine to Georgia in kind of one fell swoop, you know, walking the whole 2,175 mile path. He was not interested in that, didn't really even think about through hiking, but more about sort of um, regional connections that people would have trails kind of in their own backyard, their own region, and um, kind of connecting again with that agrarian past and um, and also it was a very kind of pragmatic plan too that had some buffers. So having this like recreational trail with a buffer around it would provide a, a kind of a tangible um, way to control urban sprawl. And so, you know, Brady, you asked about how does it resonate today? Like it it very much, I've, I've, I'm kind of immersed in some of the planning literature, community planning, urban planning literature more recently. And some of the stuff that people are talking about with, you know, sustainable urban design were right there in Benton Mackay's plan in 1921 for an Appalachian trail and thinking about how do we use green space as a way to, um, promote density and urban cores and urban centers while protecting, you know, working forestry land and working agricultural land. Um, much like, you know, Oregon has an urban growth boundaries that they developed in the 1970s. And in some ways, Benton Mackay's plans for the Appalachian trail kind of presaged these, um, things that became more common in urban planning circles in the late 20th and now 21st century. So it's, it's a fascinating read. I I really highly recommend it. It's very accessible, um, and a, a kind of a almost work of creative writing in 1921, when he published his plan for an Appalachian trail.
0: Yeah, there, there's definitely, um, at least the way you describe his vision, I th- like there, there is this this connection between rural spaces and urban spaces, and um, you know, you I think helpfully emphasize that uh, like economic growth, economic opportunity was was sort of part of what he um, and his colleagues hoped would be brought to these rural areas, right? It wasn't necessarily you know urban interlopers coming to town to sort of <laughs> protect nature and then sort of uh, come and go and almost, you know, uh, take, take it over for a weekend and then leave town with, you know, having left nothing for the community, having offered nothing to the sort of year round, um, residents. So that was, that was right. an interesting piece.
1: Yes. Yeah. He actually like for a brief moment, he had a very fascinating career, Benton McKay and uh, worked briefly for the department of labor. So yeah, absolutely. He was very interested in questions of labor and, um, yeah, a sustained sort of economic strategy for rural communities that were at that time shrinking, you know? So again, very relevant for rural communities today. Yeah. (laughs) Experiencing similar (laughs) demographic change. Yeah.
0: Indeed. Indeed. Um, so, so I, I think there's an argument throughout this book that the Appalachian Trail, its creation is a microcosm of sort of U.S. environmental politics in the 20th century, probably especially in sort of the latter half of the 20th century. Um, yep. So so what was unique about the creation of this national scenic trail and like, why do you think it is such a interesting microcosm?
1: Yeah, great. That is a big, you know, Piece of the thesis of this book is that it really does illustrate how a new model for um, conservation kind of emerged through the creation of this trail. Because, um, again, when people think about American conservation efforts, they maybe me think about like the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Crew or like other New Deal programs. When you know, uh, under under the New Deal, kind of the size of government got big and more funding on things like soil conservation work and replanting and the development of the national parks and the national forests. Um, You know, really since the 1930s, there's been a lot of focus on sort of state-based conservation efforts. But the Appalachian Trail, I think um, the history of the trail shows how there has always been this other kind of way of doing environmental um, action and environmental protection conservation work. Because the Appalachian Trail, even though Benton Mackay himself was a government official and was well connected and in, in various circles, um, with through Washington DC and throughout the country. Um, the, the actual work of the trail, which began in the 1930s and forties, um, was really a grassroots effort by citizen volunteers. And, um, it was, uh, really only until the National Scenic Trails Act in 1968, that there was a very a strong sort of federal leadership presence i mean where the trail crossed through existing national forest land or national parks certainly there was a partnership early on between citizens working for these trail clubs like the Appalachian at that time it was the Appalachian Trail Conference which was the umbrella organization for organizations like the Potomac Appalachian Trail Club or the Maine Appalachian Trail Club or the Georgia Appalachian Trail Club all these kind of like grassroots clubs were sort of loosely organized through the Appalachian Trail Conference, um, but in 1968, with the passage of the, the federal National Scenic Trails Act, the Appalachian Trail became the first National Scenic Trail, along with the Pacific Crest Trail, that was going to start receiving some federal funding, and um, the National Park Service was designated as sort of the, a stronger lead in the development of the acquisition of land for the trail. Um, but even, and I can talk a little bit later if we want, because a lot of the book talks about that complex land acquisition program, about what does it look like when you take existing private land and turn it into a public recreational corridor. Um, because up until that time, the trail had been built and maintained largely through private, what was called handshake agreements between, you know, club volunteers, hiking enthusiasts, um, and local landowners, but then with the passage of the National Trails Act, they got an influx of federal money. The National Park Service got involved. But in order to implement that land acquisition program, it was really from my reading of other conservation efforts, other sort of both state and federal um, parks and uh, protected areas, the Appalachian Trail really became the primary model for what became known as the public-private partnership. So it was really the balance of power between um, kind of a decentralized grassroots trail network, citizen volunteers, and the sort of strong central taproot of the federal government came together to actually try to um, acquire land and build this corridor. And it was really the first time that the federal government relied very heavily on this organized kind of army of citizen volunteers to to implement this new federal policy. So, um, and then you know, looking today, if we look at how conservation efforts today, there's not a lot of brand new national parks being built, or you know, new lands that are just like with one fell swoop, or creating a new wilderness area that doesn't happen very much today. Um, but what you see instead is a lot of this this partnership model where you see um, Federal agencies like the National Park Service and the Forest Service, Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, partnering with nonprofit organizations to try to achieve conservation objectives. So the Appalachian Trail was really kind of a, a kind of a new model for how to do conservation work in the United States.
0: Yeah. uh, Just to piggyback, uh, when we do see new parks, um, new protected areas created, uh, that those processes can be quite contentious, which -hmm. is perhaps why they don't happen so frequently. Um, For those of you familiar with bear's ears. (laughs) Right.
1: Right. Right. uh,
0: You know. Uh, Just look what happened in the Obama administration, then the Trump administration, now the Biden administration. Exactly. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think the history has not been written on that particular protected land. Um, But (laughs) I digress. Um, So so sort of building on this idea of the sort of citizen volunteer, um, are there particular amateur citizen volunteers involved in this history that you think more people should know?
1: Um, certainly like you also, like you can't talk about the, the origin story without you talking about Benton Mackay. You also have to talk about Myron Avery, who was a, um, you know, looking back probably, um, he was extremely dedicated, you know, I mean, I don't know, um, what his family life must have been like because he spent all his spare moments, um, working to promote this trail and, and actually build the trail. He's, you know, the, the archives and, um, at harper's ferry there's a a big archive of all atc stuff maps and journals and uh correspondence between the different clubs and um myron navy has just mavery there has just tons of pictures of him with his marking wheel where he would actually go out and you know wheel this um uh measuring stick basically and like it would be tracking the trail and getting like the exact mileage, writing the books, um, the very early books to try to get people to go out there and enjoy it. Um, he was a publicist as much as he was just in the woods actually marking the trail. And he did um, probably more for the actual on the ground organizing of different trail clubs. He was especially active with the Potomac Appalachian Trail Club. He was, um, involved with the Navy he was, so he was pretty well connected in um, Washington, DC, but it's kind of his, his pet project was really trying to take Ben McKay's idea and make it happen and actually organize people to go out and enjoy it. And then also become motivated to help protect it. And so in the 1930s, he was really the one developing a lot of those relationships with landowners or finding the people in in different communities that could help develop those relationships with landowners. Um, and kind of early promoter of the trail. So yeah, Myron Avery was hugely influential and the first, um, you know, chair of the ATC, the Appalachian trail conference, they've changed their name to conservancy, but, um, yeah, he was uh, hugely influential for a couple decades, um, actually getting the trail built. So, yeah.
0: All right. Um, so we talk about uh, environmental history and, uh, I guess, trails like the Appalachian Trail um, in relation to the environmental movement. Um, but I think uh, your book does a nice job of reminding us that uh, there is a so-called anti-environmental movement <laughs> that exists in this country and is uh, remains strong to this day, uh, even if they don't call themselves that or don't see themselves in that way. Um, so I'm wondering if you could describe sort of how grassroots movements, whether they were part of, uh, you know, an environmental movement or anti and movement, movement, um, how uh, th- sort of their efforts worked with and against state and federal efforts to create the Appalachian Trail?
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, that was one thing that I thought was pretty interesting was that um, leaders of the ATC, the Appalachian Trail Conference, which is, again, sort of the umbrella organization, uh, were very clear that they did not want um, the trail to get engaged in kind of environmental matters outside of just protecting the corridor. Um, and there's some really interesting correspondence in the 1970s, um, really 70s, 80s, 90s, where, you know, there'd be some clubs or some individual members of the ATC that really thought that they should take on um, a mining project or, you know, we should be talking about broader land protections and, um, And only in cases when there was like a dramatic, there might be a dramatic impact on the viewshed, which, you know, like the area of land that could be seen from the trail, the ATC might get involved, but they were always, I think, you know, there's that idea of mission creep, they tried to really stay focused The goal of the ATC was to build and protect the Appalachian Trail Corridor. Um, So, but it's been interesting, like, and Brady, it sounds like you've been following AT sort of more recently, a few years back, right before the pandemic, um, there was a big controversy about pipeline development. And should this, um, this pipeline they wanted to build, that was like necessary basically to connect like the Midwest to the East, Eastern seaboard with um, pipeline that was bringing, um, oil down from Canada, should that be allowed to cross the corridor? And and that was a really difficult, t- I think, time for leaders of the ATC today to to, to t- try to navigate that because it really was um, going to impact the corridor. But, um, but I guess to your point too, about your question about what about anti-environmental movements, one of the big focuses of this book was looking at some of the opposition that arose to building the trail specifically. And I guess you could maybe consider some of those groups, um, anti-environmental, but they were really focused on property rights. And, you know, in the big discourse about environmental issues in the 21st century, maybe you don't hear quite as much about property rights advocacy as there was in the late 20th century. I think that was a really big, um, part of people's resistance to support environmental policy and, you know, what we might call anti-environmental activism. So with the Appalachian Trail, the examples um, that I talked about in the book, there was um, a man, Charlie Cushman, who actually grew up as an inholder in um, Yosemite National Park out in California. And inholders, for people who are listening who might not be familiar, it's like when there's a piece of private land that's kind of an island within a sea of other land that's publicly owned. So like um, you know, a little pocket of private land in a in a big chunk of green public land. And so um Charlie Cushman grew up to be one of the strongest advocates for property rights um, and inholders' rights, people who had like private property within um, public jurisdictions. And he went around the country gathering stories of the strong-arm tactics that the National Park was using to try to buy up in-holdings, to push people out to acquire those in-holdings. And so he came to the um, – he was working all around the country, but he came to um, Appalachia. And we can talk about Appalachia versus Appalachia. There's, I've heard some geogra- geographical explanations for the difference of those two terms. But, uh, but anyway, getting back to Charlie Cushman – He came and this was one of the particularly contentious areas was um, 12 miles in Pennsylvania in the Cumberland Valley, where this was a very fertile farmland area. It was sort of between the the lower southern range of the Appalachian Mountains and the northern Appalachian Mountains. And um, the trail went through a bunch of farmland and some of the farmers there were not eager or willing to sell their property to, to have it become part of the Appalachian Trail Corridor. And so Charlie Cushman came with sort of stories about the National Park Service using their, you know, the power of big government to squash, you know, small private landowners and uh, help kind of tie their stories to this bigger emerging property rights movement. And they started a group called CANT, which was Citizens Against New Trail. And, um, we were pretty successful installing the acquisition of land through that section of, of Pennsylvania. Um, and today it's pretty interesting because after much negotiation and working with a lot of the citizen volunteers, they did ultimately find a different route through that Cumberland Valley. And, um, And now for people who hike through that area, you're like walking through cornfields or around cornfields through the sides of them. And it offers, I think, a different type of landscape um, than maybe the rest of the trail, which tends to uh, hug the ridge lines, the tops of the mountains. But um, so I don't know if that answered your question, but there were other moments of trail. There was a, a group in uh, Connecticut that, that organized, too. And again, these small groups of property owners concerned about, you know, big government coming in to take their property uh, were kind of using a lot of the rhetoric and tactics of the national property rights movement that was taking off in the 1980s um, with the rise of the new right and sort of this idea that... Um, you know, like President Reagan talked about, the government is not the solution to our problems. It is the problem. And so, building on that kind of idea, a lot of these landowners tied their concerns about the Park Service coming in to take their land to this bigger kind of story about property rights in the United States.
0: Yeah, no, I I think that answers the question. Um, I just I, I was when I was reading the book, I was thinking about this in relation to like the Bundys um, in oh, Nevada, sure, yeah. and Utah uh-huh. and Oregon, um, and sort of that whole property rights um, strain. Which, yeah, they might not describe themselves as anti-environmental, but they are definitely uh, anti-something. <laughs> whether Anti-government, it's government, definitely sure, government, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But then, at the same time, right? They they view themselves, and I think to some extent, like you talk about the sage rush, uh, sagebrush, excuse me, rebellion. Um, and some of these folks think that they are the, as patriotic as anybody, and they're actually upholding um, the Constitution as it was written, and you know should be understood. Um, so, I, 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 there's just some complexity here when we think about sort of creating these wilderness, you know, corridors, these biosphere reserves for mm-hmm. the people. But obviously, who are the people? And then it's, you know, when I'm reading this book and a lot of this literature, you know, you always have to bring in indigenous perspectives where, you know, that that just grounds the conversation in a totally different way, right? Because if it's property rights, well, property that was right. That, that was, uh, taken in a way <laughs> from right. indigenous peoples. Right. So it's well, like, who is in the right uh, here, you know?
1: Yeah. And some of those landowners, um, made that analogy. They said, we are like the new native people being taken from our land, being dispossessed of land. And so they, they I found uh, several examples of landowners using that. Like we're just like the natives who were people who were pushed off their land. And yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it really, um, yeah, there's a lot of levels of complexity to the dynamics that were happening on that landscape for sure.
0: Yes, yes, which I think is part of what makes this book so fascinating, right? Because <laughs> there's just so many sort of political elements and um you know, there's there's obviously uh some overlap in in I guess what what folks are hoping for, um but oftentimes, right, there's there's those discontinuities that lead to disagreement. So
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm.
0: it's a complex history. And I, th- I think what what really interested me about this book is I think you, you correctly identify that a lot of environmental history, or at least, you know, this, this is obviously a relatively new field, right, sort of focused on wilderness and um, sort of so-called unpeopled lands. And the AT um, is, <laughs> it is in the densest part of this country um, mm-hmm. So you you can't possibly um, sort of step into any of these conversations, these debates without acknowledging sort of the human environment interaction, right? Setting aside, you know, other species beyond humans, right? Which we can talk about uh how that is faulty logic for sure if you care about biodiversity and human community health, but yeah, setting that aside.
1: (laughs) Well, exactly. That's like that's you just nailed. That's why I wanted to write this book because I mean, sometimes I joke with people that it was a thinly veiled excuse to go hike the Appalachian trail and, you know, check out of grad school for a while and just go hike. But, um, but my real motivation for doing it was because I, I did think that that would add, um, I thought it would be really useful for people who might want to go experience this landscape to have a deeper understanding of, of the human stories that were in that landscape. So, yeah.
0: Yes. Well, well done. Accomplished from my point of view. Well, at least. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah. I
1: appreciate it. I appreciate that feedback.
0: Um, so well, we, we've, sort of danced around this uh Appalachia Appalachia um our our friends at the Inside Appalachia podcast uh, on West Virginia Public Broadcasting say Appalachia after spending an hour long episode trying to get to the bottom of it but i think you rightfully <laughs> um identify that this this is not a settled debate even if uh, West Virginia Public Radio is saying it is
1: um No but it definitely seems like in the north like the Mason-Dixon line. I don't know if that's the exact, you know, demarcation line, but in the North, they tend to say Appalachian trail and in you know, Southern states, it's Appalachia. So there you go. That's what I heard from multiple sources doing this project, but.
0: Yes, yes, for sure. But we were discussing uh, Donald Davis's book about sort of the environmental history of Southern Appalachia. And he, uh, with some other scholars, they sort of trace the roots. And if, uh, If Appalachia comes from the Appalachian people who were based originally in northern Florida, they are definitely southern to whatever extent they saw themselves as southern. In any case, it's it's an interesting and ongoing debate, but it's sort of prelude to my next question. Um, so, so what do you think the Appalachian Trail means to the Appalachians, to Appalachian identity, to the so-called Appalachian people, um, however we want to define if we want to, you know, go north and south or just sort of have West Virginia in mind as sort of the heart of Appalachia? So, yeah, what role does it play in that history and those cultures, those lives?
1: Great question. I think for better or worse, it, um, it kind of boosted that identity to a national level. You know what I mean? I think um, when people think about the Appalachian or the Appalachian Trail, they, um, you know, have a certain idea about the types of experiences that they're going to have in this Southern landscape, in particular in the Southern um, part of this trail. Uh, But I guess it's too in the Northern parts as well, some of the similar issues, I guess. But um, I think that you know, on a kind of practical economic way that it's affected them, I think um, a lot of those rural communities, some of the ones that really resisted the trail at the maybe the beginning part when the federal government got involved, now see it, that connection to the broader you know, outside world as a sort of an economic benefit because it has brought a lot of tourism to places like Hot Springs, North Carolina, um, which I guess had had some tourism there too because of the springs, but it enhanced that, I guess, um, service-based or tourist-based economy. So there's sort of that stronger economic connection that the trail brings. Um, But I think too, like going back to like the role that the trail plays in the American imagination is that it really... Kind of moved their region more centrally into people's conscious about when they think about landscapes, but it's often a romanticized landscape, right? I mean, people might have visions of moonshiners and you know all that kind of like backwoods um, stereotypes that people might have, but um, the trail actually goes through a lot of southern towns and some of these Appalachian towns, and so. it brings those worlds together, I think, outsiders kind of who are interested in experiencing a new place with these um deeply storied and interesting rural communities throughout the South in particular, um, which I think was part of, you know, from my perspective, actually doing the research and hiking the trail, that was one of my the best parts of this whole experience was actually getting to connect with people who really d- do kind of live in a different world than what you might come from me being a person who grew up in Minnesota, you know, the Northern <laughs> freshwater States up here. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think, uh, it certainly in some ways enhanced, um, maybe some ideas people have about Appalachia, but then also provided real kind of opportunities for connection and to actually, um meet people when the trail comes out of the out of the mountains and into these towns
0: no that's that's helpful um so my father grew up in Pennsylvania coal country is really how they would refer to But if you look on the map, you know, it's it's Appalachia. So I'm wondering if my my dad had grown up at a slightly different time, um, if he would have considered himself Appalachian because this sort of regional identity rose in a way that maybe it wasn't as pronounced, you know, when he was a kid, because, you know, I I grew up spending summers there and it was definitely cold country. uh, But cold country and Appalachia, like they they definitely map onto each other pretty nicely.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um okay, so we're in twenty twenty two. This this is a book uh I think about many things, but environmental policy and politics are definitely central uh to this book. So are, are there lessons you think policymakers can take from how the Appalachian Trail was created? Um, you know, it was a multi-decade creation, right? So you're clearly relying on different legislators at the federal level, state level, local level. You're relying on different presidential administrations, um, obviously power being held sometimes by the Republican Party, sometimes by the Democratic Party. Um, so so w- what lessons um, can we take? Because this, this is a project that required years and money and some sort of bipartisan consensus, at least at different points, even if it wasn't sort of, um, you know, if it wasn't continuous.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think my book um, is a hopeful one. And I think the Appalachian Trail is a hopeful story that, that when you look at this history, because it, it is amazing that this landscape was created. When you look at all the conflict and the tension and the different ideas about how to manage land and the political conflict between the left and the right and all of that, like people were able to navigate those tensions and differences to actually build this landscape, um, that has changed in meaning like it, the trail itself and the purpose has, has changed over time too. We can talk about that, but, um, I guess like I do, I think still it is that, that hope that, um, especially like, you know, folks, maybe who live in rural communities. I mean, that the looking at voting maps, you, we still see a very big difference between the red areas and blue areas. And I think the the story about the Appalachian Trail talks about um, the necessity for cooperation and the ability to navigate conflict in order to create common goals. Um, and I think that is important today uh, as it was in 2013 when this book was published. Um, maybe more so. Maybe it's gotten harder to find that common ground and to work together to sh- see the common ground. And um, you know, but I do think that that has to be. Uh, <laughs> we have to have hope that this incredibly polarized moment that we are right now in the 21st century in 2022 um, that there, that hopefully we'll find ways that we can see common goals and common ground, like creating a space like this, that could be beneficial for both rural areas and urban areas and people from all walks of life. Um, so I do think that it's a hopeful story that has lessons that are as relevant today as it was, um, even when Benton Mackay envisioned it in 1921. So,
0: yeah, I, I was actually reading this book while um, I believe it's called the Recovering America's Wildlife Act um,
1: was mm-hmm. being debated. Uh-huh.
0: And I don't know if you've spent any time looking at that, but it felt connected in that it required multiple years. It required, you know, uh, political leadership from many different states, from certainly both major political parties and a lot of sacrifices. And there was um, there was certainly an effort to bring in indigenous nations who would be responsible for a lot of the work that was being done, sort of this, this conservation work. Um, so that, that to me felt like, a yeah, like a connected piece of legislation, um, to the history you describe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, like you've alluded to this, But you spent 10 months hiking the Appalachian Trail (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, while performing this research. Um, You went to locales scattered across the trail. Um, So it's been... I like I don't know when you ended that research. I forgive me, but it's been many years uh, since you spent those ten months on the trail. So I'm wondering like what's what has stuck with you all these years later? Like uh, obviously, you learned a lot from your research, but perhaps from hiking or sort of from uh, the folks that you met on the trail. Uh, did you have a trail name, for example?
1: <laughs> I did have a trail name. Yep. Um, they called me LT, which stood for long, tall. Cause, uh, I guess uh, it was also my, my bluegrass name. I was in a band at the time too that played, we traveled with some, um, instruments. We had little travel banjo travel guitar. I was with my husband who was also my research assistant cause he had already hiked the trail a couple times and had a lot of connections with, um, folks in different areas along the trail. So, um, so yeah, that was, uh, it was definitely, it was also part of our honeymoon. So it was a, a multi-purpose trip. <laughs> so, I mean, it was a long time ago, but I, I yeah, I, I still have lots of very distinct memories and sort of lessons learned from that experience because it was um, very unlike any other Research experience, like you mentioned, I've gone on to do some different types of research, and I had done some other stuff before, but it was uh, definitely the most, I guess, um, immersive research experience <laughs> I still to this day have had. Um, and just the generosity of people from, again, all walks of life, all sides of the aisle, that people would like pick us up. We would hitchhike to archives or hitchhike to the oral history interviews we were doing. Um, and uh, yeah, just that, that generosity. And I, I think it's just part of the, the culture of that's grown around the trail. There's a lot of trail magic and um, still to this day, like, you know, when people, a friend or somebody needs a, a place to crash, even over the weekend, like you just open your doors and that's what you do for people. And I think that generosity of spirit of um, people who live in the communities around the trail was something that I benefited from and have been inspired by. So I guess that's, uh, something that stuck with me and yeah, just, um, the experience of kind of being homeless for 10 months, I think develops a certain amount of empathy, uh, in a person. (laughs) So yeah, it was definitely a mostly fun and enriching experience.
0: Yeah. You, 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 uh, Triggered a memory in my mind. Um, I've, I was previously, uh, before going into environmental history, uh, the dean of students of a college, and one of my colleagues uh, was the chief financial financial officer. Um, <laughs> uh in, in his spare time, he and his children uh, raised ducks so that uh-huh. they could have the eggs, and they would like give the duck eggs out for free because their backyard connected to the trail because we were in oh, rural yeah. Massachusetts. So they would uh-huh. just leave these like hard boiled duck eggs out. Cause they, one, they like ducks, but two, they thought they were like the highest in protein and thought, you know, hikers would need that, um, especially in rural Massachusetts. Oh, that's great.
1: <laughs> yeah. Stuff like that happened all the time. Like, yeah, people are incredibly generous. It's amazing.
0: Yeah. There's that. Uh, there's definitely, I, I think you said trail magic. And I, th- I think there is something to that. I obviously not just on the Appalachian trail, but, Uh, you know, many of these trail experiences, whether you read about, you know, the way and um, Spain and Portugal, but there's, Mm -hmm. you know, there is (laughs) sometimes a spirit of community that doesn't always exist in sort of day-to-day life um, uh, off the trail, if you will.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And the people we met, a lot of people in transition. So a lot of um, people finishing up military service and, you know, doing something, waiting for the next step or recent retirees or people going through a divorce or somebody like not sure if they're going to go to college. You know, it was really, you know, a lot of people who are doing that long, kind of long distance hiking. It's, um, they're, they're kind of there for a reason. And usually like at a, a moment where they're open to change. So you have some really interesting conversations with people too. So, um, Yeah, I I, I hope I always love it when I have students who are, you know, certainly a lot of young people like the idea of through hiking the Appalachian Trail. So I always I always love it when a student is like thinking about it and starts planning it. And we sit down with maps and um, I get to kind of relive that experience again because it it really is pretty formative.
0: Indeed. Yeah, that's it's a transformative experience, right? If you're going to spend 10 months doing anything with your life. You, you will likely change in some way. And if it's something as intense as a through hike <laughs> where you're relying on the kindness of others, I won't say strangers, right? Cause they're, <laughs> they aren't necessarily strangers. Um, you know. so, so part of me in interviewing you nearly 10 years after this book was first published, uh, is I'm hoping there will be a second edition. And in that second edition, I will gently encourage you if it happens, um, to include more of your personal sort of observations. (laughs) So I'm wondering, were you at all tempted to include more of your personal observations? It seemed like you were... um you were journaling throughout this experience. And, and I have to say the you interspersed like very lightly some of your observations um, and reflections. And I thought they were really interesting sort of companions to this broader history because you, you are a part of this history, right? You, or I, I guess William Cronin points out that, um, in 2008 right finally 10,000 people had hiked through hike the Appalachian Trail and you had done it in 2007 right so you're part of that history in like a way that you know not all researchers are part of the histories they're telling so were you were you t- tempted yeah. at
1: all Oh that, that's very interesting observation Brady yeah i um i really was intentional cuz when i was you know reading the first thing i did was read, I read everything that's been written about the Appalachian Trail before i started my book and um there's there's a lot of hiker narratives out there you know my how I almost died on the Appalachian Trail and how it was so epic and you know all this like kind of like self-congratulatory you know writing usually by young men and I, I I really didn't want the book to be that book but I you know but I did want it to have like some kind of you know, personal engagement and, you know, the story that we, stories and people we were meeting, I wanted to bring them into the book somehow, but without being kind of self-indulgent. So I, or you know what I mean? Or just having too much of your personal story. So um, that's a, that's an interesting comment. <laughs> oh, I, I hear you. I, yeah. I
0: also recognize this is the book, right? Is based on your dissertation. First book as a scholar, right? You're sort of building yeah. a career in a way where inserting yourself uh, would not have probably been helpful to your career. Um, but you are now a tenured professor, correct?
1: Oh yeah. So maybe I have yeah. to go back. I'm actually on sabbatical. Maybe I'll have to go back and hike it next year and really you do know, the
0: book. I, it's. Uh, up to you, of course. But yeah, there, there were just moments where I, I was really interested to to sort of learn about sort of, one, your experience of hiking the trail, but also what it's like to end up in an archive after hiking, you know, who knows how many days and like finally finding, you know, that, that material that like yeah. unlocks some part of this history in a way that, um, you know, maybe you hadn't planned or you know, I, when you're walking in this way, right, you have a lot of time to ruminate on the subject <laughs> <laughs> that you're writing yep. about. Right. So oh, I, am, yeah. I would imagine the book was benefited from all of that rumination reflection and sort of recording your reflection. Right. So uh, it's not to say that you don't find that in this book. I, I think you do. Um, but there were just moments where I was like, "Oh, tell me more about that. You
1: know? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's good feedback.
0: Yes. Uh, in any case, I, I won't belabor that point anymore. Um, so we've acknowledged this, this is a, a book research, you know, well over 10 years ago, published almost 10 years ago. Um, so what are you working on now?
1: Well, most recently, um, well, it's been actually a few years now, um, looking at different, looking at sort of different ways of using wood as a renewable resource for energy. Um, and looking at, it's a pretty different project, actually, but my background's in forestry. And so I wanted to do something more, I guess, rooted in um, my new place, which I'm in the Great Lakes here. Uh, but this start, project kind of started in Vermont, where I was teaching at Green Mountain College, which was the first, one of the first carbon neutral campuses. And one of the reasons they became carbon neutral was that they had this um, biomass plant. So it used... Wood, wood chips harvested from local forests to produce um, about 80% of the heat on campus and 20% of the electricity. And, uh, you know, I thought that was a pretty cool and interesting idea. And it was a topic, again, that not there's not a lot of research on sort of the historical development of modern wood burning technologies and, and really looking kind of more broadly at how, is using forests for fuel as an energy source, a, a sustainable choice and like under what conditions, what are the environmental justice implications. Um, And so I've been working on this kind of wood project for a few years, got an NSF grant with um, colleagues at Michigan state where we're doing some like uh, mapping and looking at in Michigan specifically how different scales of wood burning technology distribute benefits and burdens and how do sort of different communities, how are they affected by, different scales of these technologies. So pretty different from the Appalachian Trail. Honestly, in some ways the Appalachian Trail was fun and like, you know, I got to hike the trail and um, move through a landscape, but this project's pretty Michigan based right now. But, um, but it's still interesting and, and definitely has implications for thinking about sustainability and land use um, that are connected to the Appalachian Trail research.
0: Yes, well, it also, it it doesn't get more, uh, I guess, elemental than burning, humans burning wood for fire. Right,
1: right? right. that's kind of (laughs) where it started, yeah. You know, yeah, human and
0: environmental engagements, right? If it started there, then maybe a few histories need to be written on that.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And there, again, was surprisingly little written about that. So that's kind of what I've been up to lately.
0: All right. Well, um, I will ask this question. Is there anything we haven't touched on in the book that you think we should or anything that, you know, you think would be of interest to our listeners?
1: Um, not, that I, uh, not that I can think of. You know, people often talk about or compare my book to Bill Bryson's book A walk in the woods. And I wish I was that funny. I wish my book, I mean, there's moments of humor in my book, but <laughs> you, know, um, you know, or like they ask like how accurate was his, some of the history in there. And it's not, you know, it's not a hundred percent inaccurate, but <laughs> there were some liberties taken, I think. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, the project was really fun. I, I enjoyed this interview because it helped kind of bring me back into that space of writing and thinking about that project. Um, but yeah, I think uh, you asked some great questions and I appreciate your interest.
0: All right. Well, I think we officially need to send Bill Bryson an email and say for the next edition uh, yeah. of that book that uh, we are going to have you and uh, your blurb added. Uh, not, what did you say? Not 100% inaccurate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. In any case, um, <laughs> Sarah uh, thank you for joining me today.
1: Great. Thanks, Brady. I appreciate it.